that song from? Caddyshack. 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 That's right. Yeah. That's Kenny Loggins, man. That's some serious singing. I'm all right. Ain't nobody what about me. <laughs> we should do and it. And we start, start Who doing that. Who sings that song? Kenny Loggins. Yeah. yeah, let's keep it that way. We need to do that shaking, grooving, um, gopher thing. I'm sorry, what? The gopher would dance. Oh, that's at the right. The beginning. Yeah. Gophers, you kill all the gophers. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many useless quotes in your head of just rubbish movies. Miracle oh, wait, Story. Turn, turn it up. Yeah, that's the part. Hey, way to turn it up. Thanks. All right, uh, Devarshi Stephen Hartman is the co-founder of the, I'm not going to pronounce half these names right, the Pranathan, oh, this is horrible, yoga school. He currently leads 200-hour, 500-hour yoga certification programs around the country. He's been a student and teacher of yoga and yoga philosophy since 1974, when he was four years old. Uh, Lived in a spiritual community, which is otherwise known as an ashram, for nearly a decade. uh, He was the director of professional trainings and the dean of the Kripalu School of Yoga from 2004 to 2014. He has dedicated his life to the study and practice of the art and the science of yoga. Devarshi is the author of the best-selling audio series, The Essence of the Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavad Gita, one of the hardest things to say, it is, as well as the simple secrets of inner peace and the new Kripalu Yoga DVD viewed by over 250,000. He has personally trained over 4,500 yoga teachers in a 200 and 500 hour certification programs. Wow, this is that's a the, lot of time. The dude works man. hard for a yogi, man. Hardest working yogi in show business. Hey, uh, diversity, no for that. wrong yogi. Meathead. Uh, Devarsi's training has included many years in personal growth classrooms, training with Wernhard Earhart, Werner, Werner Earhart. And remember the EST stuff? Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. Can we, uh, let's actually bring uh, Devarsi on right hey. now. Devarsi, as I'm reading your intro, what goes through your mind? Because I haven't even finished yet. What goes through your mind? Uh, <laughs> uh, not, not much. I, I think I think what's next? <laughs> Seriously, dude. I mean, let me just keep going because uh, some of the stuff I don't understand. Life Spring, Life Stream, Eris, the New Warrior Program, Avatar, Master Wizard. Were you in the movie? Um, and of course, <laughs> yoga with almost every leading yoga teacher of the past three decades. Um, he has been a student and a teacher of a course in miracles since 1976. I mean, this makes it sound like you're 80 years old, man. Well, I'm I'm uh, close. You are not. You're nowhere near. Well, I, I, I'm uh, just started my 60th year, so very happy about that. Well, congratulations! I think someone did have uh, someone had a little birthday this week. I did. Happy birthday to you! Thank you. Uh, like I said, I just started my 60th year. Yeah. Wow. And how did you celebrate? Uh, wonderfully went out to dinner and had a great time and saw both my kids yesterday. Okay. Cool. So, um, I think for your birthday, it would have been much better to hang out at the indoor pool in the Hearst Castle. That would have been way fun. Yeah, um, I was there recently, and it was pretty darn cool. It's one of the most beautiful places. If yeah. you If you were at home with your parents in Arizona for your actual birthday, how would they celebrate it? Well, I was there last week, and they gave me $50 and a hug and a kiss and <laughs> told me they were proud of me. That's, That's awesome. $50, <laughs> so good. Did your parents ever put wrap uh, coins in wax paper and bake it inside the cake? No. Oh, okay. No. Must we be- got, generally for our birthday, we got to choose the dessert, and we got $5, if they remembered. If they remembered your birthday? 
Yeah. It, beer, birthdays were not big in our house. No. Okay. Were there a lot of you? Like, we forget or? No. There were, I had two brothers. It didn't, you know, wasn't a big deal. It was like, yeah, you were born. Right. I, I, th- I can't quite remember when, but it was a good thing. You're here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I have I've just got a ton of questions uh, for you, and I'm I'm really not even sure where to start. So I'm just going to start. And I found out about you through uh, through a good friend of mine, Lindsay Vandenherk, who owns a yoga studio up in Orangeville. Discover your yoga. She's been on the show a couple of times, coming into her own as a as a professional speaker, encourager, motivator. And one of the things that she's tried to explain to me is Kripalu. And um, she's such a good communicator that I still don't understand what Kripalu is. <laughs> <laughs> Kripalu is confusing. It has been through many iterations. So uh, um, it has changed continually, which is one of the things that I think is amazing about it. And um, it's gone through a lot of phases. When I moved into Kripalu, it was a yoga ashram. So let's see, that was 1981. And there was a a guru who was the head of the ashram, Yogi Amrita Sai, and um, people moved in uh, because it was a celibate, renunciate, cloistered community with people dedicated to yogic practice and sadhana, spiritual growth. Um, and we did workshops. We did yoga teacher trainings. We did personal growth workshops, yoga-related, for the public, which was how we um, kept ourselves afloat. But it was an ashram first. Then, in the uh, you know in, in the ninety, I think it was ninety four, but obviously it had been happening before. Then uh, the ashram fell apart due to um, Yogi Desai being discovered that he had been having some sexual indiscretion issues and sort of not preaching what he practicing what he had been preaching, and um, so the ashram went through a transition. Most of the ashrams, which which was the case, I mean, many of the main ashrams in the United States went through the exact same thing, so ours was no different. The difference is that Kripalu actually continued, and the community did right itself and turn itself into a viable business, and Kripalu Center today is the largest holistic health um, yoga center really in the north, in, in the country. Wow. So, Wow. Okay, so is there I'm always interested in people's spiritual journeys, where they've come from, where they are, where they think they're going. Um but I'm also interested in in your journey in regards to yoga because yoga comes with with beliefs. And uh and I want to know how you have changed over the years. Is there anything that you used to believe about yoga or about Kripalu that you you maybe you don't believe anymore? That's a really good question, because I would say what you just said is exactly the opposite of yoga. Um, And one of the reasons why I love yoga is that for me, yoga doesn't come with beliefs. Hmm. And that, um, you know, many philosophies or religion, etc. And people often ask me, is yoga religion? And I'd say, it's not a religion, because uh, it's a science. And the difference is this, if you come to religion, it says, here's the list of beliefs. In order to be this religion, you have to believe these beliefs. If you do, you're in. If you don't, you're out. Right. And often with you're out, there's big consequences, like you'll burn in hell forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's fear associated with that. With yoga, it's completely a- the opposite. It doesn't care what you believe. You can believe anything you want. It says just do these time-tested practices, sadhana. It's like I always say the yoga yoga um, uh, slogan should be Nike's slogan. Just do it. Right. 
Because if you do the practices, the practices will create an experience. And experience is really king. And your experience will challenge your beliefs. Hmm. If you hold beliefs that are really worthy, that live up to your experience, those beliefs will be strengthened. If you have beliefs that don't, can't fit with the experience that you're having, those beliefs will be challenged. And then you have a choice. Wow, I don't like my beliefs being challenged, so I'm going to quit doing these things that challenge it. Or I'm, I, you know, I'm going to adjust my beliefs to right. um, relate to my experience. I still think that yoga comes with beliefs. I, I'm not saying, though, that they're religious beliefs or spiritual. I mean, any, any tribe has a set of beliefs. Would you agree with that? Well, I would say that what happens is we ultimately have to talk. So in order to talk, we use language, and in order to use language, we have beliefs and concepts that go along with it. But ultimately, yoga is ultimately dropping into a sense yoga means union. And so when you do the practices, you're looking to experience union or being at one with all that is. Hmm. And in order to pop off into that experience of oneness, of feeling yourself and experiencing yourself as infinite, eternal, and whole, in order to get there, you have to let go of every belief, even your most spiritual, fabulous, wonderful beliefs. All your yoga beliefs have to go to sit quiet in the moment, you know, with what the, what the goal of yoga says, what Patanjali says, which is to experience the present moment just as it is, without any distortion. Okay, so that's maybe that's why the Jesus people freak out about yoga, is because of what you just said, which is, dude, you got to drop your beliefs at the door. you got to drop your beliefs at the door. One of the reasons I've got you on the show is because I, I think that, um, you know, we have a large Christian listener base. We have many people from many different belief systems listening to our show, but a lot of them are Christians. And you know as well as this is not news to you, uh, Devarshi, that you know Jesus people freak out over yoga. Um, have you ever understood that? Do you actually understand it? Well, I do. I mean, I also went to a fundamentalist Baptist college, so I certainly understand um, you know the fundamentalist uh, and and the fundamentalist Christian belief and and way of being. I think that there's an essence here that. Jesus himself was teaching, which is the science of love, and that love is actually a science. And um, I don't think there's anything in yoga that Jesus would be um, opposed to. I think actually he was one of the main yogis. And certainly uh, the foundation of yoga is the teaching that you are infinite, eternal, and whole. And I think that's the essence of Jesus's teachings and the essence of um, the crucifixion and the resurrection, which were coming up close to Easter. I mean, the whole point of that, that crucifixion and resurrection was, look, hey, I'm infinite, eternal, and whole. So are you. We live forever. Let's be kind to each other. Mm -hmm. Wow. You just threw me a loop when you said you grew up in a fundamentalist Baptist uh, church. Well, I didn't grow up in a fundamentalist Baptist church. I went to a fundamentalist Baptist college. Sorry, sorry, I I heard that completely different. So you grew up, or sorry, you ended up going to a fundamentalist Baptist. Why? Why the heck would you pick that to go to? Because I was very interested in spirituality at every level. Anybody practicing anything was of great interest to me, number one. Number two, I uh, had to pay for my own college, and um, I really was tired of state schools, which were very large and close to me within walking distance to my parents' home was a fundamentalist Christian college that had a really great education program. And that was what I was studying was to become a teacher. There you go. Makes total sense. 
Uh, I can only yeah, imagine. In the meantime, I sang in a gospel team for Jesus all around the country and <laughs> had a fabulous time. Man, okay, so I already know a little bit of your story, and of course, hearing that part of your story now, I'm sort, I'm sitting here going, "My goodness, the incongruency or the the uh, the con- the internal conflict that must have been going on inside." And do you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, but except that for me, it wasn't at all because I was at the same time studying a course in miracles, and then um, I was going and watching people that I felt were. Why wasn't this fascinating? They have a lot of love for God. At the same sense, they had much more attention. My my viewpoint was they had much more attention on the devil. I mean, I saw so many people just, that's satanic, and that's the devil, and don't do that, and don't do that. And I was like, well, uh, for me, it was like, I've got all my attention on God. I'm living in a loving universe. I'm not running around here in fear, and there is no opposition to God. So, you know, my whole thing was there is no devil. I did a whole thesis in college on um, the devil saying that the devil doesn't exist, and the key statement in the Bible is that Satan is the father of lies, and my thesis was, and the first lie is, that he exists. Hmm. The first lie is that there could be anything opposite, you know, the infinite. Mm -hmm. So fascinating, so many people living in that polarized a thing. But I have a viewpoint about that, which is that there are always people progressing in learning. And, you know, w- w- without sounding very judgmental, I mean, I think the planet has a curriculum where we evolve, and there are people who need to go through fundamentalist, right, wrong, yeah. you know, stages. And that's part of what being here is all about. Here's a website for you folks. It's stephenhartman.com, S T E V E N, stephenhartman.com. Devarshi, can you help me understand exactly what impact you watching your friend die had on your world? Mm. Well, uh, I was 12 years old, and I witnessed um, one of my best friends get killed in front of me. Um, And... It really, as much as I can say, it actually was an enlightenment experience, because in that moment, and I did spend about probably 45 minutes to an hour and a half in a state of complete, you know, in quotes, disassociation from reality. Um, The self that I knew was gone. When I watched my friend get hit, I went into a state of beauty and oneness, and I feel like I experienced that moment in a way that God would have experienced it, or God does experience it, which was not one of violence or torture, but literally, and I know that this sounds crazy, but as my friend got really shattered in front of me, I watched his blood flying through the air, and it was a beautiful, sunny August day, and I remember the sun glinting on his blood and just thinking it was so beautiful, like jewels. Hmm. And um, and I was no longer myself. I was just in a state of complete mindlessness for uh, a while. Um, and so it, um, it was a wake-up call. And then I also was acutely aware very quickly that no one, my parents included, you know, I I like to say it was really the end of my childhood because I was very aware nothing anybody could say to me. There There were no answers for this. There was no help. I was on my own. I was absolutely alone. Um, and, um, 
and anything that anybody said wasn't um, satisfactory. Nobody really knew. And I was aware, like, wow, people are going around saying they know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Hmm. Hmm. So it was a wonderful wake-up call, and I would say it started me on my spiritual journey because the result of that was I literally wanted to die. I mean, I thought, if I'm just a body, then please, you know, this is not fun. I would like to leave. Um, But then the question was, what's this all about? And for me, that question was vital because it was a life-or-death situation. It was like, if there's a purpose for being here, I must find it. I must find it. And it was clear that not many people were all that interested. People were just going along, accepting the answers that everybody was giving them, and I refused. It was like, this is, I'm, I'm not stopping until I got it. <laughs> so how did you, I mean, look, there have been numerous people over the years who have felt the same as you. I would say the vast majority of us are more like sheep and just go along or gerbils in the hamster wheel. Wait, that'd be hamster in the hamster wheel. <laughs> but there are, you know, numerous people who have, who have said the same thing. Okay, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. And they end up. Uh, landing on a on a faith system, uh, they they either believe in a monotheistic uh, belief system, like uh, they they become a Muslim, or they become a Christian, or they become you know well most Jews are sort of born into it. Some people are are buying into it afterwards, and and then there are there are just so many you know Buddhism. And, I mean, it goes on and on and on. How how did you not go down one of those roads? Um, well, I certainly went down not just one of them, but I would say every one of them. Huh. Um, uh, I mean, I studied fervently every major religion, and not just studied it, but became it. You know, I mean, I really doused myself in. Um, like, like I said, you know, I was one of the best Christians ever. Thing, <laughs> and the gospel team, you know, was was bringing people to Jesus. You know, having a great time. Really. And you know, I would say I was one of the best yogis ever too. You know, going towards enlightenment, practicing like nobody's business, you know, eating vegetarian, fasting, you name it, doing it. Um, But you didn't you didn't just you didn't just sort of land on one and become that forever. You sort of you sort of it was a smorgasbord of 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 faith testing or faith and not. Sorry, I just made it sound trite and like you were tasting and testing just what you said. You became each one of them, whatever you explored. True. But believe me, I, yes, and I love you. That was by no means an insult. I think absolutely, I, I tasted everything like it was a smorgasbord, and yes, ate everything like it was a smorgasbord. Right. You know, I was very fortunate though because I do think that the the books, of course, in miracles, really were the foundation. And throughout all of my, um, you know, smorgasbord, I was studying, of course, in miracles, which has a very universal um, philosophy. And as a result, um, you know, I see the essence in everything as being the same. And, um, uh, you know, so the, the big things, there's very little difference here. I mean, I think, like Einstein said, there's basically one question that we all need to answer, which is, do you live in a loving, ordered universe or not? Hmm. Wow. How dark has it gotten for you, Devarshi? How dark! And, yeah, and I I ask you that because let me yeah, let me give you the the preface of this. Um, I I read a lot about you yesterday. I creeped on you online in a big way, and I, I got to the point where I was sick of hearing everyone saying nice things about you. It was disgusting. <laughs> 
And so you exude, obviously, this light. You live this light. It, it, it leaks out of you left, right, and center. And, and, um, and, and this actually ties into, a, to, I guess, a, maybe a part B of this question, you know. Um, the, um, the certainty that I've come across, maybe it's just my experience with Lindsay, but I, I've met other yoga people as well. Sounds like they have a disease. Uh, and I think they do. Um, <laughs> I, I, there's, so many, there's so much certainty in, in, the, in the world of yoga, and yet it, it floats into this world of uncertainty. And what I'm trying to say is that people like you, I mean, I think you're the extreme, but many of these yoga people I come across just seem to come across like they know where they're going and they're at peace with it and they're and it just seems so certain. I mean, you know, you can't be sitting up there as a yogi and, and being all waffly about stuff, so I understand there's got to be some certainty, but it's intimidating to me, for example, who is the most spiritually uncoordinated human being you've ever met in your life. <laughs> Uh, let alone physically trying to do what you guys do. So there's an intimidation factor for outsiders when we're looking in on the yoga crowd. And then there's you, Mr. Ray of freaking sunshine. That's <laughs> funny. Well, um, I, you know, so I, this all started when you asked, asked the question, so how dark does it get for you? Yeah. Um, so I would like to say, one, I think that for every person born into this human experience, each one of us knows sadness, loneliness, and despair, um, and I certainly am no uh, stranger to it, um, and, um, and how fabulous, nor do I think that I won't be there again. Um, the question is having resistance on it. Um, to me, there's full acceptance that life has sadness, loneliness, and despair, and so the weird paradox of that is that I can be happy and even blissful in fully experiencing the fact that people die and I lose people and feel separated from people that I love. And when I allow myself to experience grief and loss and loneliness, that when I really don't resist it in any way, there is a bliss in knowing how much I love and have loved. Hmm. So, um, so that's about the, the, you know, quote, downside of, um, but I, I'm not really living in a, in a um, dualistic life is really what the difference is. And so I want to say something else about this aspect of certainty. Um, you know, certainty is a little scary because certainty and fundamentalism sometimes go together. And I, the one thing I feel I'm a fundamentalist about is not being a fundamentalist about anything. <laughs> well said. Yep. So, so I mean, I, and saying all of that, I have beliefs that I would die for. So I have beliefs that I believe are true, and um, I would be willing to put my life on the line for them. Saying all of that, I hold my beliefs, I like to say, with a soft grip. I know that every belief in any belief is nothing more than a belief, and I could cross the, cur the pearly gates and, you know, for example, I like to believe in reincarnation. I love the belief. It's fabulous, and there's many things in my life I can't explain without it. But I could cross over and God could go, you know, Devarshi, you were wrong, that was it. And I'd go, wow, how cool, you know? Yeah. But still, I love the belief. Still, I would say, no problem. I had a great time holding that belief while I was alive. It helped me. You know, so there's a difference then about being a fundamentalist, you know, because I, if a fundamentalist holds the belief, they say, I'm right and you're wrong. Yep. 
I say, I'm holding this belief and I believe in it fully. Let me, what do you believe? Wow, how does that affect you? Yep, that's where I'm at, that's for sure. Very different thing. Um, I think... I think having discussions where we are believers of beliefs and you talk to the person who's the believer of a belief is a very different discussion than when you're talking about, I am this belief and you are that belief. And that's why we have problems with world peace, because very few people are having the discussion at the level of being believers Hmm. of the beliefs. Devarshi, when when does self-exploration become unhealthy? In other words... You know, is there such a thing as too much inner focus or what I would like to call the narcissism of escape? Hmm. Well, um, great question. And in order to answer it, I'm actually going to take the attention off of that question because and put the attention on the goal. If the goal is not misperceived and is clear, then people don't get narcissistic. And, and the goal is actually very simple. I don't know anybody who doesn't agree with the goal. So for example, if we had a a group of people out in front of us and we had people from Syria and people from China and people who were young and people who were old and people who were gay and people who were straight and people who were Christians and people who were Muslims and we said to everybody, got one question for you, what do you want? Okay, people would raise their hands and within a very short time, because I've done this, people would say, I want peace. I want love. I want belonging. I want safety. I want a sense of meaning. I want a sense of purpose. I want a sense of health. I want a sense of, of, um, of presence. And so within a short bit, that's the list, you know, and, and what's really fun is I've done this with four year olds, five year olds and six year olds, and they don't waste a second. (laughs) You ask them what they want right away. They're like, world peace, love, everyone to like each other. You know, I want to feel safe. Like they don't waste a second. Rarely. I mean, I ask this question to people, rarely does someone go, I want a Mercedes Benz, you know? And when they do, I say to them, and what would a Mercedes Benz get you? They say, oh, a sense of safety or a sense of prestige or a sense of, like, I've, I've made it or accomplishment. Okay. Mm. But what you really want is safety and accomplishment and, and, and feeling like you've made it. Cool. So then the next question is, now we all agree, the whole world agrees that we all want the same things, peace and love and belonging, safety. And then the next question is, so where are you going to find it? And everyone, without a doubt, raises their hand and says, within a short bit, within the self. It's the only place to find it. Okay, we all agree. Then the next question, and this is the trick of why it gets so slippery, when are you going to find it? And the only answer to that question is now. And this is what the problem is. If you do not, the only place that you will ever experience peace is right now. The only place that you will ever experience love with another being or yourself is right now. The only place that you will ever experience like you belong, like you're safe, like you have everything that you need is right now. And people are not practicing that. What they're practicing is, I want love. I want to feel rich. I want to belong. I want peace. So the experience of the present moment is one of not having it, but one of wanting it. And yoga, yoga union is about practicing being present, being present in your body, being present in your mind, being present with what is. No need to control it, no need to change it, no need to manipulate it. The world and the universe is totally doing a great job all on its own. (laughs) Just experience it just as it is without you needing to change it. 
And um, within that, that's really the key. Most people aren't practicing that. Now, to get back to the narcissism, if people are practicing being present, their attention is off of themselves. Right. Well said. Wow. You're good at this stuff, eh? (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing, though, how complicated we make what's really simple. And um, it's not any big mystery at all. And so the goals of yoga are, wow, in order to practice being present, a person needs to be in in charge of their attention. And that's what so many of the, the practices of yoga are about. Be in charge of your attention. If you're not in charge of your attention, you're a victim of it. And so many people are attracted here and distracted there and repulsed there and don't even know why. And when you're in charge of your attention, you can say, I choose to place my attention on this. And that's where I choose to to flow my attention. And thus, that's what my experience is. Devarshi Stephen Hartman on the line with us, stephenhartman.com, stephenhartman.com, that's with a V, a V. There's two things I want to talk to in, and we've got four minutes. So you ready for this? Mm -hmm. Go for it. Have you had any experience with the supernatural, with spirits, with with evil, oh, oh my or, God. or with with I don't know, maybe um, maybe a toy getting knocked over during some serious meditation after your mother-in-law died? So many that you can't even imagine. So, um, and they happen to me all the time. So, let, did you play that music, by the way, on purpose for me? Yes. Okay. All right. So you started playing that music, and I was like, okay, did he do this because he's listened to my tapes and heard that story, or was that just completely accidental, and my mother-in-law speaking to me? So, you know, that story, which is on my tapes, is about my mother-in-law passing, and of course, someone knocks over the gopher that starts to sing, I'm all right, you don't have to worry about me. (laughs) So here we started the show, and I thought, well, that's funny. Um, You know, um, so that would have been an... It, another example of the supernatural playing yep. playing its way, where my mother-in-law would be, you know, reaching her uh, arms over the the ethers. Yeah, except now I feel bad that I just ruined it, you know, because I planned it. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you don't have to feel bad. That was good. I wondered if you had planned it, and I thought, wow, he's done his homework. That was good. Um, all right. Well, let's let's finish let's finish with this because we are we're running out of time. Boy, it's so easy to talk with you. Thank you so much, Tavarshi. Um, and, and you also. And I've had many many supernatural experiences, which of course, um, you know, are amazing. And I've certainly sought them out and um, and do my best to create them for others. I I have no idea how to word this, so I'm going to stumble through this. Um. How do you concisely help me understand how you felt when you were married to a woman with two kids and then a year later you were out as a gay man? Because that journey brings up all sorts of suspicions for me, like did you feel trapped? Did you feel dis- you know living this l- lie that you were living? Um, and... And then all of a sudden was this a huge freedom and this burden lifted and well then how does and then how do your kids respond to that and and your your ex wife and how is she and did she know I mean dude I've got seventeen hundred questions about this 
but I don't know how to wrap it wrap it up in this in this last few minutes. I in one minute. Yeah. Well, I would say this: none, all of those projections that you just listed, none of them are true. Um, so okay. you know, I was not trapped. I was not tortured. Um, I was not cloistered. Um, nor was I deceiving my wife in any way. Um, you know. Uh, I, I think this is a whole other show, and I love to talk about sexuality, not just for myself, but for other people, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I teach workshops, you know, to, to men, and I think men are in a great identity crisis. And so that's, that's my next big mission, is to work with the male identity crisis. And um, so I don't know that I could go any further. I mean, I've got lots of things to say, but I've always felt very open with my sexuality, like I have with my spirituality, and um, I feel like I've evolved, continued to evolve. But um, I can just say this, I, I mean, at the heart of I've always been monogamous, I've always only been in long-term relationships, I was married for 17 years, was never unfaithful or living some cloistered, closeted life, mm-hmm. I did not feel trapped, I, you know, I feel, I, you know, like... Uh, Everything you always wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. I read that when I was in sixth grade, and he said, you know, it's a bell curve. Most people are attracted to everything. I was in sixth grade, and I went, wow, the scientists say most people are attracted to everything. I said, I'm normal. I'm attracted to everything. I think any time anybody showed me anything, I was like, yeah, that's attractive to me. Wow. So um, it's still the case. Have you, I've, you know, Devarshi, have you written extensively about that journey because it is in some ways uh, certainly a societal anomaly and it is just incredibly fascinating because you come at it with such authenticity um i haven't written anything yet but i actually weirdly this summer i'm going on two uh, i've been invited to two writing sabbaticals so at omega institute and at esalen so i will begin and and that subject the the male identity crisis of today is really what i want to focus on i think you know just in closing donald trump is one of the biggest archetypes of what i was brought up a a, a quote man should be arrogant a bully a winner you know you got a model on your arm you tell people to go screw themselves you know um and i think the reason why he is in this position today is because we are reevaluating in mass consciousness that archetype yeah. and that that archetype needs to be um brought down quite frankly and put in its place really well said i i've been thinking the same thing uh, uh, that is I, it's just too ironic that he is who he is now at this point in our world but yeah. too many people still are holding on to that. They want that as their leader. They want that as their husband. Mm-hmm. They want that as their, you know, their their protector. And, you know, it's got to change. Devarshi Stephen Hartman. Lindsay was very right. You are <laughs> just a freak. Oh, wait, she didn't say that. I'm saying that. <laughs> well, I hope she said that because I'm totally on for that. Yeah, yeah. What a pleasure. Thank you for chatting with us, Devarshi. Thank you so much. Really great to be with you, Drew. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, there you go, folks. Devarshi, Stephen Hartman. This is why one of the reasons I wanted to do this show so long ago was to speak with people who believe things that I've been ignorant about, who live completely different lives than I live. I'm so thankful I'm able to finally look at someone like Devarshi, Stephen Hartman and go, yeah, you know, 15 years ago I would have been scared and said okay you're going to hell and and i would have judged the hell into him yes oh nice i'm sticking with that that's nice stay with us